tell you guys a story. Um, yay, it's story time. Um, tell you, yeah, it was kind of creepy, wasn't it? Uh, I want to tell you a story about uh, um, a friend of mine and, and um, kind of uh, some, some, some history of, of my life. Um, about 1995, 1996, my wife and I moved from Texas to the city of Chicago, um, and we, we moved there pretty much just to go on an adventure. We had never been kind of out uh, or moved away from our families. We just decided it was time to kind of try something new. We got up there, and we, we eventually found uh, a church that was like unlike any church we'd ever been to in the, uh, in the sense that it was, like, it was like one of these mega churches. You know, like it was, we had never been to a large church like this before, like 20,000 people on a weekend type of deal. And, but we had so much trouble finding a church that we were like, well, we'll give this thing a shot. And, and actually um, some really cool stuff happened and we got hooked up with some really, really cool people who were doing some cool things, uh, primarily in the form of a, of a ministry that looked and felt a lot like E3 does now. Uh, it, it looked that way to us. It was called, this place called Axis, and it was uh, a place where it was, it was a ministry designed for people kind of like where most of you guys are at. People are in their 20s, 30s, but then everybody else came as well. It was just kind of this random, eclectic group of people. And, and church back then, um, it, it, was a, it was not like a place where you would find like necessarily like kind of rockin' band that way. But, but this place that we found did. It spoke our musical language. So we started hanging out there a lot. And we met some people there, and we got into a, one of these things that Dan was talking about earlier, this, this thing like a growth group, a small group. And um, we just started living life together. We would do stupid stuff together. We would laugh together. We cried together. And um, eventually, some of us found ourselves actually going on staff with this church. Like We were all kind of folks in our mid to late 20s. And we started working, actually, some of us, at this place called Axis. And like on a weekend, there would be 1,200 people in their 20s all coming together to kind of seek God and find out about themselves. And um, in particular, um, I got to be good friends with this guy Dave and his wife Tiffany. And, and we um, kind of shared a lot of dreams and asked a lot of questions about the church and about God. And pretty soon, Dave and I would start, we found ourselves started to talk about, like, what it would be like if God wanted to start a, a church in downtown Chicago. We, we were living, like, 40 miles northwest of Chicago. But we would go down, and we'd spend time in the city, and we would see all these young people, just millions of young people, just hanging out in Chicago, and no churches anywhere down there. And so we started asking, well, like, what would it be like if we, if we left like this crazy, big, important job that we have at this massive church and just took a risk and did something crazy. And, uh, and we, we talked and we prayed and we said, I, I think we should just go for it. We should just go for it. So Dave uh, and his wife, Tiffany, and, and me and my wife and, and Emily, our, our oldest daughter, was just a baby at the time. Um, we left our jobs and we moved uh, back down to the city north side of Chicago, and in, around Easter 2001, we opened the doors of a church called Christ Church of Wrigleyville. I think we have some pictures of it. This was our church building. It was like 100 years old. Um, it was about a block and a half from Wrigley Field. And so we started our gatherings Easter of 2001 with about 12 people 
all between the ages of 60 and 80. So it was rocking, let me tell you. Um, and Dave, uh, my, Dave would, would do most of the teaching, if, if all the teaching. I did the music. And uh, the craziest things started happening. Like the first week there were 12 people. Then the next week there was like 15. And the week after that there was 18 and 20. And, and they got younger too, which was, which, which was cool. Um, and so pretty soon like worship kind of felt like this. Like this was, uh, this was sort of that first season of our church. I think this was Christmas time. Um, and uh, there's, that's actually Dave right there, kind of with, right there in the far left. And I, I don't even know if I'm in, in that picture somewhere. But the bottom line was God was doing something really, really cool. And about a year and a half into it, I had to, I had to leave, uh, leave the church, and uh, I had another baby on the way, and w- there were just not enough resources to kind of um, support my family. But Dave stayed there, and he pastored that church through season after season, and it's still going today, even though Dave has since uh, left the church as, as well. But here's a kind of funky story, because... Um, Dave's last name uh, is Gwartney, David Gwartney, and his parents are Jim and Amy Gwartney, who serve on Wise Council of, of E3. They're right, right there. And now, now, bear in mind that I didn't know this at the time. I met Dave in Chicago, and then years go by, and then I meet this guy named Mark McNeese, who wants me to come with him to start this church. And at first I tell Mark no, but if you guys know Mark at all, like Mark just calls back and calls back and calls back. And so pretty soon uh, I'm considering this move. And then uh, Mark's like, well, hey, uh, you know, Jim and Amy Gwartney kind of go to our church. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? Like this guy that I knew in Chicago, you know, 10 years ago, his parents are, are part of your little church plant that you're doing so there was this crazy connection and the reason I want to tell you guys that is that um, Dave spends a portion of his summer uh, almost every summer here in Tallahassee and he's been here for a while kind of an extended time helping his father out on a book and um, we've been trying to get Dave to come teach because he's a gifted teacher gifted communicator for a few years and it's finally worked out so uh, I'm pleased and honored to introduce my friend Dave Gortney. Dave, come on up. Welcome, Dave. Welcome. Um, and we're going we're gonna to spend some time tonight talking to you guys about uh, the book of Philippians. And we're going to spend six weeks in this book uh, together. And um, I'm going to teach a little bit. Pastor Dan's going to teach a little bit. Mark's going to teach a little bit when he comes back. But we kind of thought it would be great fun for us to kind of together lay some foundations uh, on the book of Philippians. And um, it's a, a wonderful, wonderful piece of scripture. And I would encourage you guys to spend as much time in it as we're going to spend. You know, it's a short little book. You can read it, reread it uh, uh, constantly. And and we are going to uh, kind of ask what that piece of scripture has for us. So, you guys ready? Yeah. Um, the, the, the book of Philippians actually starts with a story not too far different from what I just told. The, 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 the story of the book of Philippians starts with the story of a church being planted. 
And so we're going to start actually in the book of Acts. So if you guys have your Bibles and you want to turn to the book of Acts, it's right after uh, the gospel of John. And uh, basically this, the story is this. There's a guy named Paul who has been sort of radically, um, radically encountered Jesus Christ and then goes on his way starting little churches around the Mediterranean. Starts in Jerusalem, then spreads all the way around the Mediterranean. And we're going to pick up the story in the 16th chapter of Acts in verse 9. So he and his buddies are out traveling around. And that night, the scripture says, Paul has a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And then the author kind of chimes in, so we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace, and the next day we landed at Neapolis. Uh, From there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and we stayed there several days. What happens next is that Paul... uh, goes into Philippi, basically, and he goes looking for a synagogue, because this is what Paul does. Remember, at this time, Christianity as we know it is still just a part of the Jewish religion, a part of the Jewish faith. So Paul goes looking for a synagogue, but he doesn't find one in Philippi. For some reason, there's just not enough people to start a synagogue. So he goes around, and he eventually finds a collection, basically, of women kind of doing chores near a stream, and he starts talking to them, and he starts just telling them, hey, did you hear about this guy named Jesus? This amazing thing has happened. We think the Messiah has come. Uh, the, the, the king of the earth has been revealed, and his name is Jesus. And basically, that point, that starts the, Philippians, the, the church at Philippi. So this, this tiny little group, first of, of women, start just coming together and learning from Paul and his companions. But then it's a very eventful um, Type of visit because Paul um, exercises a demon from a woman, and the kind of uh, the associates of this woman are really upset about it. So they go to the Roman officials and they say, "Hey, there's this guy talking about uh, something. This guy named Jesus, and it's not it's not Roman. It's not Roman culture. It's 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 weird stuff." In the Roman Empire, you could practice different religions as long as the state authorized it. Judaism was an authorized religion, but nobody knew what to make of this Jesus guy. So these guys go and they complain to the government, and the government says, well, we can't have that. So they throw Paul and his companions in jail. There's kind of a supernatural kind of event with an earthquake, and the next day, Paul and his companions are beaten. Uh, just, they, they just kind of take them out and give them the, the third degree. And then they're set... Then they're set uh, they're set free, and then they kind of go on their way. And that's kind of what Paul does. He goes to a church, starts it, and then he moves on because that's his kind of mission from God. He's a church-planting, church-starting guy. But this church at Philippi grows up to be a very, very special place in Paul's heart and, and in our scriptures. And uh, Dave's going to kind of talk to you just about, a little bit about the, the town of Philippi and why uh, it kind of matters to us. So, cool. 
Thanks. I feel like you've kind of upped the pressure every time you've introduced me. So. Oh, yeah. No, well, next time I'm going to invent some kind of miracle. Yeah, it's going to be a big, faith big deal next something. time. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's uh, good to be here tonight with you. And I got to say, it's always a bit surreal uh, when I come and visit E3. And uh, the reason being is because, like Eric said, I grew up here in Tallahassee and then spent some time in Chicago, a lot of time in Chicago with Eric and Shana and the uh, last 13 years in Chicago. So when I come here and visit, I see both people that I went to elementary school and high school with and that I've known for 20 plus years and probably even people who knew me when I was running around as a little kid. And then I look up and I see Eric and Shana and it always uh, throws me off my game a little bit because I'm never really sure where I'm at or when I'm at um, because it's like these worlds colliding. So uh, that's why it's always a little surreal when I'm here visiting with my parents. But uh, growing up, I was shaped by being, uh, growing up here, a Tallahassean, you know, and all that that means. Went to Florida State and living in the South, and that really shaped me. And I was also shaped by living in Chicago for so many years, and all that that means. Uh, I love being in the urban environment. I love the Midwest mentality. Um, being in Chicago means the Cubs break your heart every year, and that's just part of what it means to be a Chicagoan, you know? Now, why do I tell you all that? Well, I, I'm not going to go all LeBron and give you an hour special about me, but I say this for a point is because uh, just as I've been shaped by being both a Tallahassean and a Chicago, and I'm sure each one of you could tell me how you've been shaped by where you grew up or maybe living here now or where you went to school or something like that, and what, where you came from meant something. I say all that because when we read that Paul and his uh, traveling companions enter Philippi, it's always good to think through, what did it mean to be a Philippian? Sometimes we just have a tendency to lump all those ancient people in together and not really think it through. But being from Philippi meant something. And I found the more I understand that aspect of it, and the same with any of Paul's letters, that I, I really start to understand what Paul is writing to them specifically. It helps me understand it better. So I just wanted to share a couple of things about what it meant to be a Philippian, okay? What, it did, what, it, uh, what shaped them? Why was Paul so interested in this city? So a couple of events are going to be on the screen here. The first one, uh, Philippi in 356 wasn't called Philippi. It was a little mining village. And uh, there was gold and silver mines nearby, and it didn't take long before a really powerful king realized that uh, to have this little mining village as part of his kingdom would be very advantageous to him. So this very powerful king comes in and kind of co-ops this little village and renames it after himself. And that guy's name was uh, Philip of Macedon. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he was a very powerful king at that time. And in fact, he's a little bit responsible for this region of uh, Macedonia uh, to have the reputation of being a, a little bit of a backwoods place. Uh, because of this king, uh, it really gained acceptance and uh, really adopted a lot of the Greek culture and really became to be respected among the Greek city-states. But Philip of Macedon is probably better known for who his son was. Okay, So he founds Philippi. He's probably better known for who his son was. Are there any history majors here? No? Well, I'm going to throw a question out. Uh, uh, does anyone know who Philip of Macedon's son was? 
Alex, wow, everyone knows that. Did everyone see the movie? You're thinking Val Kilmer, Philip of Macedon? Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, Philip of Macedon's son was Alexander the Great. Right? And Alexander the Great um, was great. That's why he got that <laughs> title. But he basically conquers the entire known world by the time he's about 30 years old, except for Italy. He goes east and uh, all the way to India, and everything in between Macedo Greece, Macedonia, and India basically is under his control now. And he uses Philippi as a launching point for a lot of this military activity, at least in the beginning, to go into Greece, to go into Asia Minor, what's now Turkey, and on into Palestine and uh, those regions. And so from the very beginning, 356, Philippi is attached to these very powerful leaders, Philip of Macedon and then Alexander the Great. And that uh, was part of who they were, part of their heritage. They were very proud of the fact that they had royalty representing, represented right there in their name. Okay? The second event is the Battle of Philippi in 42 BC. Now, if you, uh, I just shifted my mic there, sorry. If you uh, fast forward about 300 years, who knows what happens on the Ides of March in 44 BC? See, I'm hearing a bunch of Caesars, yeah. Uh, so that's right. Uh, Caesar was, um, we might say, voted out of office with a lot of knives and stabbing. And uh, he is assassinated, Julius Caesar, and there, a, a civil war arises in Rome. And uh, um, uh, Caesar's adopted son, Octavian, and his general, Mark Antony, um, they want to keep power in control of Caesar's line. What, what Caesar had acquired for himself, they wanted to keep that uh, right kind of in the group there. And the senators, led by Cassius and Brutus, uh, who were involved in the assassination themselves, they wanted to return Rome back to the Republic. So uh, they divide their armies up. Cassius and Brutus go into Asia Minor and gather armies. And then they come together and meet, and they meet at Philippi. And there's a major battle that happens at Philippi. Okay? Now, it, it was a pretty one-sided battle, although it didn't start out that way. But Octavian, who would later become Caesar Augustus, and you can read about, he's mentioned in the Bible. Uh, so Octavian and, and uh, Antony are victorious. And uh, the war at that point is not quite over, but the fate is pretty much decided who's going to win. So much so that uh, um, Octavian actually retires some of his troops around Philippi. And this was a way to actually get the people of that region on your side. You settle troops there. Uh, you give them citizenship, and he really charged these troops, these retired military people, with bringing the best to Rome to that region, and primarily Philippi. And in fact, in history books, sometimes Philippi is referred to as a miniature Rome. And so they were very proud of their Roman citizenship. They were very proud of the fact that they were a miniature Rome. They had a lot of military, ex-military people there. And uh, that was a huge part of their identity as well. So all that background, I think you'll see that play out in Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians, but that's what it meant to be a Philippian. Uh, you had this uh, founding fathers, these great uh, larger-than-life people. Uh, you were a miniature Rome, more so than any of the other cities that Paul visited besides Rome itself, and you were very proud of your citizenship and the culture that you represented uh, Rome right there in Philippi. And uh, Again, we're going to see those play out, but uh, I'll turn it back over to you. 
Yeah, and, and it's very important. It, this is not just kind of like random kind of, um, um, you know, trivial pursuit type questions. These questions matter because these were real people. When you read Paul's letters to the churches, they're, they're, they're unlike anything else in the Bible because they were written for a very specific group of people who had names. They were very, very real people with real concerns, with real mistakes that they would make. And, um, and it's very important to understand that because the, the, we, don't under, we know that those people were real. We know that they had real, real issues and real, real mistakes, but we don't always know exactly what they were because we're only getting one half of Paul's letters. We're only getting the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. We're not getting the, the, the piece of information that Paul is responding to. And so we're kind of left with this idea of like, well, what, what, what uh, was the purpose for Paul to write this letter. And, and, and questions like this are really, really deeply engaging and really, really challenging. Whenever you're, at a, whenever you're at a situation where you're only seeing one half of a conversation, it's very, very, very challenging. And, and this week, I, I was privileged to find this amazing resource that is a, is a great example of what happens when you only see a letter coming from one side of, of a story. And, and it's this amazing book called P.S. I Hate It Here. And uh, what this is, is it's kids' letters from camp. And, and uh, all it is is pictures of their letters. And it's not, um, it, it, it totally intrigued me because I was like, this is an example of like what, it's, what it's like to read one of Paul's letters. You, interest, you, you read these letters and you're like, what is going on in this camp? And that's kind of like what some of Paul's letters are like. What is going on in this church? But uh, we're going to put up some of these letters just because I thought they were so awesome. And um, the, the writing is kind of dodgy, so I'm going to just read them to you. Um, and, and I hope there's some moms and dads here tonight because you guys, above all else, will understand like, what it would be to, read, to get a letter like this and be like, hello, uh, camp is awesome. This is a guy named, I think his name is uh, Sam. Camp is awesome, and we're all making cool things out of duct tape, but I don't have any. If it isn't any t- too much trouble, our cabin could use two rolls of the tape. If you decide to send the tape, please send it as soon as possible. So they're up to something with duct tape. Who knows what it is? I don't know if, if, if Sam got his duct tape. And then how would you like it uh, if you were a parent and got this letter? This is from Dylan. Dear family, today, today we went on the I, something pole, which is, that's the pole up in the top left-hand corner. That's Dylan on top of the pole. It's a huge wobbly telephone pole that you climb to the top of and jump off. <laughs> also, also, my finger got smashed under a canoe, swelled extra huge, and turned green. Zach, the health guy, put acid on it. I exploded with pus. (laughs) He lifted up my skin and I could see my muscle in my finger. Now it's fine. Also, we canoed down the the river 17 miles. And that's his little picture of the canoe trip. And that's, I think, the picture of his finger. And you can see right there where he's written a little key. One says, says red where his finger was. And then the box below it says green where the pus was. It's awesome. How about this letter? 
Seriously, you would just be like, what is going on? Dear family, guess what happened today? I sliced my shin open and I could see the bone, but I'm okay. I also am having a good time, but I miss you. P.S. I lost my wind-up flashlight uh, somewhere. Please send me a new one. And then this is my favorite one. Imagine mom or dad or whoever, if you got this letter. It just says, dear mom, guess what? Love Leslie, and that's a pile of hair. (laughs) So when you don't have both sides of the conversation, you are forced to fill in the gaps, and your mind can go crazy places. And and when we go in, when we journey into the letters of Paul to churches, there is a certain reality that we only have one side of this conversation. And so it's up to us to kind of understand what's going on in Philippi that would cause Paul to write the things he is writing, to use the words he's using. And, And I'll tell you this, when you understand that, it brings scripture to life in a way uh, that that you may have never experienced before. So uh, a couple more notes about a letter. So Paul is writing these things, and and he's dictating them. So Paul, it's very rare in Paul's letters that he'll actually write. When he writes it, you'll see in Scripture, he'll say, basically, see how I've written this part. Paul dictated most of his letters. And if you read the the Greek or, or a more literal translation, like you can just see Paul thinking out loud. Sentences just run on and on and on, or, or he'll just go and then he'll stop, and then a completely new subject will be, will be begun. And so Paul dictated these letters in bursts of like spiritual and, and emotional energy, and the grammar is, is rough, and then he would send this out, and basically uh, the other part of this, these letters were meant to be read aloud, like we sit with scripture and we read it sometimes silently to ourselves. But as Paul would have traveled around the Mediterranean, he would have sent these letters back to the church, and the church at Philippi would have gotten them and said, okay, guys, come on, we got a letter from Paul. And they would read it out loud to each other. And they would hear what Paul had to say, uh, whatever sort of issue was being addressed. Now, as we venture into this letter, we're going to kind of use four questions to frame our discussion. And they're very, very simple questions. Whenever you approach a letter from Paul, you want to ask four questions. Uh, who wrote the letter? Who was it written to? When was it written? And why was it written? And we're going to spend the rest of our time just kind of basically dealing with those foundational uh, questions. So if you want to flip over to the book of Philippians, we're going to start into the scripture now. Um, it's right after Ephesians, right before Colossians. Verse 1 begins this way. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. So who wrote the letter? Paul and Timothy. Timothy probably uh, literally wrote the letter. Paul dictated it. But there's something interesting that I want to point out to you that, that is very key to understanding this letter. In almost every other letter that Paul writes to a church, he says this letter, something like this letter is from Paul called to be an apostle by Jesus Christ. Anyone ever heard anything like that? Paul, the apostle Paul, anything like that. Uh, That is in almost every single one of Paul's letters to a church. And it's this word called apostolos in the Greek. And that word kind of has two meanings to it. it. One meaning is a very normal meaning. An apostolos is a messenger. 
You're given a message. It's you're an apostolos. Take it over there and deliver it. And it's used very much in, in, in the New Testament that way. There's another way it's used in the New Testament. We're like, yes, you are a messenger, but you are a messenger from God. You are, you are carrying God's very words. In fact, there's one point in the book of Hebrews where Jesus is called our apostolos from God. And so that word is used both ways in the New Testament. And Paul has both those labels with him. But the point is, is that Paul is an apostle. He is recognized as a messenger from God. And in most of his letters, he reminds his churches. This letter is from Paul. Do you remember? I am a messenger from God. Which I don't know, but in, in my world, that's a pretty heavy title. Like if someone says they are a messenger from God, you might want to listen to that guy. It is not in this letter. Paul says what? This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that where we're going with the book of Philippians and where Paul is going with the book of Philippians, that missing word is key. Because Paul instantly says, I am an apostle. And essentially he's saying, I am an apostle. I have this right. I began this church. I carried the words of Jesus into this community. But I am not coming to you on that authority. I'm not coming to you with the authority of an apostle. I'm coming to you with the authority of a slave, a servant. In a sense, Paul is giving up his rights as an apostle to talk to to the, the church at Philippi as a servant and a slave. So moving on, he says, I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the elders and deacons. So who's the letter to? Work with me, people. Who's the letter to? Everybody in Philippi, the church at Philippi. uh, Paul says it's written to all of God's holy people. But don't get hung up on that phrase, God's holy people. If you're part of the church, guess what? God considers you part of his holy people comes out of the book of Exodus, where God says, I'm going to make a nation of priests, and you're going to be a holy people for me. And so Paul says, this is written to the church, everybody. And that's key, too, everybody. That little word where he says, all of God's holy people. Because what you're going to find later on in the book of uh, Philippians is that there's some people who aren't feeling the whole unity thing. There's some people here who aren't feeling the all thing. There's some people here who are saying like, you know what, I'm not so sure about these guys over here. I think we've got it together. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm writing to you as a slave and a servant. And guess what? Everybody's got to listen. This is written to everybody. So then he goes on and he says this. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for who? all of you, with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. The last thing about this section is he uses this word partner. You've been partners with me from the very beginning. And that that word there in the Greek is a word called koinonia. 
And sometimes it's translated as fellowship. But what Paul is saying there is that koinonia is much bigger than just fellowship. Koinonia is this word that's almost like a business word. It's like, hey, we're going to be in business together. You're going to put up some money together. It's like a commitment word. It's a word that says, hey, church at Philippi, you have been in this koinonia with me. You've been generous with me financially. You've been supportive with me. You have been sort of all in, not holding back anything. And so that's his reflection of the church. You guys, this is written, this is a letter written to all of you. And you guys have been there in so many different ways. Every way that you could be involved in this, you are involved in this. And that's who the letter is written to. And now Dave's going to tell us a little bit about when and also the why. Yeah, it may seem like we're doing a lot of uh, intensive background work, but I've really come to appreciate that the more I do on the front end, kind of like those postcards, the more I'm, uh, the more I'm really able, the more the scripture really jumps off the page at you, mm-hmm. and, and that's why I think it's really important. And I have a tendency sometimes to uh, read some of Paul's opening chapters in his letter because they follow a very similar pattern. He usually says, "Hey, it's me, Paul," uh, and I want to like bless you and say a bunch of flowery things and then pray for you. And, and I usually read that, kind of skim over it, like we might say blessing at a meal. Kind of, It's something good to do, but really the meat and potatoes are there and it's getting cold, so let's just jump into it. You know, um, I tend to do that at least sometimes. But uh, the more I read Paul, the more I, I've recognized that, man, there's a lot of information in these opening verses of each one of Paul's letters that are there, and he's telling us exactly why he's writing it, who he's writing it to, the circumstances around it, if we'll take the time to really unpack all that, and we're really missing a lot if we jump right into what we might consider on a surface reading of, well, let's skip past this and get to the good stuff. You know, the good stuff's right in chapter one of a lot of his letters. That's what I've come to find. So we're, at, we're uh, talking about these questions, uh, who wrote the letter and to whom? Uh, I want to continue reading in verse 7, because this gives us a a clue into when it was written. Paul says, So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in my defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. Paul really doesn't use this kind of really uh, intense feelings and love uh, to hardly any other community as he does here. And it's, v- it's clear that he's very close with these people uh, in Philippi. But in, the, in those couple verses, he gives us a clue as to when he might have written this because he uses this phrase, um, both in my imprisonment and then in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. Now those words defending and confirming, those are legal terms. We can just read over those real quick. But Paul, what Paul is actually saying is, I'm presenting my legal defense, and I'm defending my right to teach this stuff. And in fact, he's saying, I'm in prison for it right now. So that gives us a clue as to when this was written, because it narrows it down for us. Paul spent several times in prison. Must have lived a pretty colorful life to say, I've spent several times in prison. But we know at least one of the times was in Philippi. Eric talked about that earlier. 
But that time, he's really in prison only overnight. And so presumably, he didn't write this entire letter while in prison overnight. Um, so we can eliminate that. There are some who would say that he was in prison in Ephesus for quite some time, although I don't really think uh, there's a lot of evidence to support that. But there are some, depending on what study guides you read, might say he wrote this from Ephesus. Uh, but his two major imprisonments are in Caesarea and then in Rome. Paul goes to Jerusalem, and he's arrested there. The, the leadership there and to trump up some charges and say, you just can't be teaching all this. So they arrest him, and he spends a couple years in Caesarea. Um, and then he appeals to his Roman citizenship, and uh, he is shipped off to Rome, and he's shipwrecked on the way there, and there's all these ordeals. But he finally arrives in Rome, where he spends a couple of years in house arrest. A house arrest was very different from being thrown into the dungeon, maybe, like he was in Caesarea. Uh, he's actually uh, free to have visitors come and visit him. He's actually free to write. He's actually sending these people back to where they came from with letters. And so sometimes these are known as Paul's prison letters, and it's usually from this time period. So we're going to say it was written around 60 to 62 A.D. when he was under house arrest in Rome. Okay? And again, that clue's right there in some of these opening verses. And then we get to the why. I'll continue reading in verse 9. Paul continues saying, I pray that your love will overflow more and more, that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters, so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Now, I think... The all-important question of why is Paul writing this? I think it's in those verses, but it's going to take a minute or two to unpack because I think it's one of those cases where it gets lost in translation from the original language Paul's writing in. Okay, so I want to unpack that for a minute. Uh, I had an opportunity two or three years ago to go to Rwanda, Africa, and I was asked to speak at a church there. I was there kind of checking out some missions opportunities and partnerships. And I was asked to speak at a church there. And I was a little nervous because it was the first time I'd ever spoken with a translator. So you had to use really short phrases, you know, uh, little sound bites that the translator can throw out there. And uh, I had to keep it really simple. So I, I, I had this simple little theme of, like, I come from one place and you all live in this other place, but we have Christ as our common bond, you know, just like that. And uh, I was explaining how I come from Chicago and it's cold there. And sometimes it snows, and it's this huge city as compared to here in Rwanda, where it's, it's a rural countryside, and it's beautiful, and it's tropical, and it's near the equator. And I said that I came from Chicago, and it gets cold, and it snows there, and the translator stopped. And he just kind of looked at me, and I didn't know quite what was going on. And uh, so I repeated it, and he looked at me again, and he kind of looked to the person to the right of him, and he, they were having this whole conversation. And, you know, this is in the middle of my talk, and I'm just standing <laughs> there. And they're having this whole conversation. And then he talks to someone else, and he looks at me again. And I said, should I repeat it? And he said, no, no, no. And I had another conversation. And then he proceeds, it seemed like, for a really long time to talk to the people there in their own language. And then after a while, I was starting to feel left out. After a while, <laughs> he looks at me, and he goes, okay, continue. And I just thought, 
wow, what the heck did I say and what the heck did he say to them, you know? But I continued and, and just finished the talk and met some of the people afterwards and uh, I could tell they appreciated it. And I grabbed the missionary afterwards and I said, hey, what was all that about? What was that whole time out and that whole conversation going on? And he started laughing and he said, well, uh, you said it snowed in Chicago. And he said, and here in Rwanda, in their language, they don't have a word for snow. And so he had to think about uh, what he was going to say to the congregation there. And he had to really think it through and, and talk to some people. And I said, well, what did he end up saying? He said, well, they understood what ice was. You get it at a restaurant every now and then. So he said, it, I, he ended up saying that it rains in Chicago, but it's really cold and the rain turns to ice and the ice stays on the ground and kind of covers everything and it's crunchy when you walk on and did this whole explanation about what ice was and how it stays on the ground in Chicago. And the whole time I'm thinking, snow, that's all you got to say, you know, like <laughs> who doesn't have a word for snow? But apparently the answer is... I don't know if they have one uh, here, Dave. No? In Tallahassee, I don't know. But you all know what's... Am I losing you right now talking about snow? What is this thing called Eric's snow? like, I'll tell you later yeah. what it is. <laughs> it's ice and it comes on the ground <laughs> yeah. and then it crunches. Got it. All those confused looks. No, so I had that moment where I realized that a very simple concept just didn't translate. Mm. And it took a lot more words to actually explain it. And I, I tell this story because I think there's a word in the original language that really sheds a lot of light on why Paul is writing this. But it doesn't jump off the page at you. Okay? So when Paul uses this phrase here in verse 10, where he says, I want you to understand what really matters. That word for what really matters, or some versions say what is the best, is a, a Greek word called diaphero. And it has a wide range of meaning, and it can mean what matters. It can mean what is best. But it means it in the context of uh, the difference between two things and why this is the better choice. But the focus is really on the difference. He uses this word, it's not used very often, but he does use this word when he's writing to the Corinthian church. So this is Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 41. Let me just read this real quick because I think it will become clear. Verse 41, the sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars each have another kind, and even the stars differ from each other in their glory. So Paul's writing about the stars. And by the way, later on in this book of Philippians, Paul will use this similar imagery. He'll talk about shining like stars in the universe. But he's writing about these stars, and he says, first they look the same, but really if you look at them, they're different. And he uses this word, diaphero. They're different. They're different in how bright they shine. They're different in their color. They're different in the way they're arranged in the sky. And the emphasis is really on their difference. So here's what I think is going on if we go back to Philippians. In verse 10, Paul is saying, here's my prayer for you, that your love will overflow more and more. You'll keep growing in knowledge and understanding because I want you to understand, and I would put the words in there, I want you to understand what makes you unique hmm. and what makes your community different. And I think you'll see that play out in this letter. Paul's saying, I want you as a community to really understand and to use this language of the stars, what really makes you shine brighter than everything else around you? 
because he talks about their Roman citizenship. He talks about some other things. And he says, yeah, I understand that's part of who you are. I understand that you're proud of that. But I want you to really understand and come to know what makes you different. What makes you shine bright? What makes you stand out? He's writing to this uh, church. And again, there the word is just ecclesia, or church. And that was a very common word. It wasn't anything overtly spiritual. It didn't become that until Christianity started to use it over and over for their gatherings. One thing I think Paul is saying is, what makes your ecclesia different from all the other ecclesias going on in Philippi? The philosophical gatherings, the political gatherings, the social gatherings. And even, yeah, you call yourself Christians, and he was obviously very fond of them. We've had this partnership, but still, I want you to figure out what it means to be a Philippian, what it means to be a Roman citizen, but what it means to be a follower of Christ and really stand out. And that, to me, would be the main message, and I think that'll be unpacked through the rest of this series. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come up. And as they're coming, uh, I want to leave you guys with a couple thoughts. As we go through this this letter, we want to constantly ask each week two questions. And and Dave just alluded to the second one. What does it mean to be a different type of community? And we're all citizens of Tallahassee, citizens of the state of Florida, most of us, citizens of the United States, most of us. But Paul has said, yeah, 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 citizen, citizen but you're also a member of the kingdom of God. So what is it about your membership of the kingdom that's going to make you different in your citizenship in the world? And the, and the other question that we want to ask is like, what does it mean to live in community, period? These are the types of questions that Paul's letters ask us. What does it mean to be an ecclesia? And, and I want to uh, kind of reiterate that like, Uh, basically everything Paul has to say, in a sense, he's already said in the first 11 verses of the book. The hints are all there. What Paul would say, you know what it means to live in in community? He would say, it means that sometimes you need to lay down your rights. If you are an apostle, whatever you think you can lay claim to, there are times in community where you have to say, I'm just a servant, and I'm going to serve you as a member of this community. Uh, There's going to be times where you're going to be uh, sort of forced to embrace suffering in community. Paul is writing in prison, and yet he's going to write some of the most amazing words of joy in the book of Philippians. So sometimes being in community means you're going to embrace suffering. And then uh, lastly, it's just going to be an idea for some of you guys of embracing the idea of being all in. In community, koinonia. Like, are, are you just friends with people here? Or are you willing to say, I'm going to be a partner with every single person here? And I'm going to lend generously uh, to emotionally, generously, financially, generously in terms of encouragement? Koinonia. And all of these things are going to play out for the rest of the weeks of this letter. What does it mean to be different, and what does it mean to just be a community together? I'm going to invite you guys to stand, and Randy's just going to lead us in a time of response.